Hello everyone, it's December 7th, 2021, so two big stories this week, good news and bad news. Bad news first, SpaceX is having some financial trouble. The good news is that we've got more details on Rocket Lab's Neutron rocket, and it is impressively different. So let's talk about the bad and the good, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 337 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm not Ben. I am Dennis. Yep. Ben's not here this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so Ben isn't uh, recording with us today, but he has helped uh, design and set up the show, uh, including you know picking out the stories uh, for the top of the hour, as well as uh, adding a short and sweet. And so he's he's still with us now, even if he's not going to be audible, <laughs> in a sense. And we have a lot of people joining us live. Oh, we've got a crew, yeah. It might be because we're approaching Christmas, and that's always nice when, when, when people have free time. Mm. Because I know that even on a Sunday, it's difficult. You know, you got other stuff to do. Sure, sure. I'm very good at being at places like physically, like if I have to be somewhere, mm-hmm. I'm pretty good at that. But if I have to just log on to some website or whatever, then I totally forget. Like I'm because it's like you don't have to like prepare for it. And so I don't think about it. Right. I actually did miss the I guess it was like a live stream of the Rocket Lab thing that they did this week, which we're going to talk about later. So. Yeah, I mean, whether you watched it live or, you know, <laughs> whether you watched mm-hmm. it live or caught it, it, it was the same experience, you know, you couldn't, Yeah, you weren't interacting with anybody during the live stream or anything like that. So we'll come back to that, <laughs> but um, I guess we should just get on with uh, the other big news item. Mm. So let's do that. Raptor issues. Uh, this was the other big story this week. Mm. I don't know if it's, well, I guess it's not clickbait when you see on the, all these websites that SpaceX might be facing bankruptcy, although I tend to doubt that. But that's kind of what the, how do you put it? That's when something is a possibility, but not likely. You know what I mean? Right, right. The, the weird thing about the about this was that it's, it is a bit clickbaity in a sense, because it's probably not the case. <laughs> <laughs> that this yeah. bankruptcy is quite as it's a bit hyperbolic, but the thing is, is that this is all based on an email from Elon, uh, an internal email to SpaceX employees that was picked up uh, at Space Explored and reported on by Derek Wise, and he talks about that. So it's more that he was probably being a little hyperbolic, at least that's my my, my take about this, given that this is. Uh, one facet of Elon's gr- larger enterprise and even SpaceX's enterprise, the Raptor production on its own. But as we'll talk about, there's a lot of interconnected parts here. But yeah, it's it's not that they twisted his words or anything like that, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So so what happened was this, this Space Explored site uh, reported on this leaked email that they had obtained a copy of. And then uh, Michael Sheets of CNBC picked it up and reported it as well. And, you know, it seems very credible, right? There, there was some skepticism initially. A lot of people were, a lot of people were on social media asking for the receipts. Can we actually see the email itself? And that's not typically how these go. And I think based on everything that we've seen, there, it does seem to be credible. And the thrust of the email is not a terribly long one, but essentially it's all about these, uh, it's all about the Raptor production. If you had been following, evidently uh, a few uh, senior managers had left SpaceX recently. In particular, uh, Will Heltzley, who is the Z- senior vice president of propulsion, uh, left due to a lack of progress with the uh, uh, Raptors uh, coming online. And around that same time, another uh, vice president of mission and launch operations, as well as a senior director also of mission and launch operations, also left. And it seems that 
again, this is all related to the production of Raptors. And so the email, here, here's a line from it. Unfortunately, the Raptor production crisis is much worse than it had seemed a few weeks ago. And we, as we have dug into the issues following the exiting of prior senior management, they have unfortunately turned out to be far more severe than was reported. There's no way to sugarcoat this. So it sounds like there were issues with the production. And if you watch, say, uh, everyday, uh, Tim Dodd, everyday astronaut, his long multi-part interview with Elon Musk on site, which is really incredible and a strong recommend. Elon emphasizes how manufacturing is really the key part to the success of this endeavor, right? It's not so much having the coolest uh, design quirks and not really quirks, but you know, the coolest design features, the sleekest looking rocket, the most power, the most this, that, and the other thing. No, it's really production is going to make you successful as a company and as an enterprise. And so this squares with that, but it sounds like they were not able to really pump these out, these Raptor engines out at the rate that they need them to be able to. And as a result, you know, some people were let go, some people left. And this email is about, well, it's referring to that as a crisis. And it kind of makes sense. Uh, the first super heavy launch is going to, they're not going to recover the the booster. And so there goes, what, 39 Raptors into the ocean that are, that are no more. And so, and that's one where they're planning not to recover it, but even when they do try to recover it, they might still run into issues. And so there could be a whole lot that are lost. Oh, I said 39. Uh, it, it's more like 29. So <laughs> there's so many hard, hard to keep track. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So thank you note in the chat, uh, pointing out that it's, it's 29 engines, not 39, but in any event, it's still multiple dozens of engines. And even when there are attempted recoveries, they might not all work. This is something we see as a theme with SpaceX, that they, that part of the process of iterating and improving means that you're going to lose some vehicles, right? We saw uh, starships blowing up uh, one after the other after the other in particular. This is evidently not even the, the key problem, though, because in the email, uh, here's, here's another line. The consequences for SpaceX, if we do not get enough reliable Raptors made, is that we then can't fly Starship, which means we then can't fly Starlink Satellite Version 2. Falcon has neither the volume nor the mass to orbit needed for Satellite Version 2. And Satellite Version 1 by itself is financially weak, while Version 2 is strong. So SpaceX, as we've noted on the show, is losing something like $1,000 for each customers signing up for Starlink beta right now because the, the business case hasn't been closed yet. And so a key way around that, as I understand it, is that these, these next generation Starlinks V2 version two will be bigger, which is unfortunate, uh, but not that much bigger, evidently uh, somewhat larger, I think is the, the term that Elon had used previously, but they'll also be more uh, they'll be heavier and have more power output. And so those would make the financial case much better for Starlink. But because they're heavier, you really do need Starship. Uh, Falcon 9 isn't going to cut it for that. And Starship, which can put up 400 at a time, which is pretty incredible number. 
one other thing, by the way, going back to how genuine of a problem is this, he sent this out, what, on Thanksgiving, I think it was, or he recalled everyone on that day. So mm-hmm. um, it's generally thought that if you're doing something like that on a holiday, then it must be pretty important because you wouldn't do it otherwise. And it wouldn't be like, you know, this isn't like a publicity stunt or something weird that he's doing because, you know, that's always a possibility. But if he's going to do something like that on Thanksgiving and say, hey, like, you know, drop what you're doing and come back, then things must be pretty serious. It totally stands the reason that they're having problems um, with Raptor production. Yeah, that is the hard part, huh? So mm-hmm. I wish we knew more about what exactly the difficulty is because I, I can't think of like, I guess they would just need to build more factory floor space or something, you know, like I'm wondering on where exactly the bottleneck is, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I don't know if you have any ideas as to exactly like where that might be, but that's what we need to know. Yeah, I, I don't know either. I, I I could, if I had to guess, a totally unfounded guess is perhaps just due to the complexity of Raptor 2. It, there's mm-hmm. just, well, I, this isn't really saying much different from you just because of that complexity. There's something, some step along that production line that is serving as a bottleneck. Uh, or they're just not being able to produce them at the clip that they need because Elon's talking about launching uh, these every two weeks next year uh, w- would be the cadence ultimately that they would need to get up to to be comfortable and happy. Uh, a Starship flight rate of at least once every two weeks for next year. And that that is the second half. What I just said there was actually a quote. That was the second half of a sentence that began with what it comes down to is that we face a genuine risk of bankruptcy. If we can't achieve a starship flight rate of at least once every two weeks next year, that's the part that I think he's saying that really to stress. Like, well, I guess there's a few things like we could talk about with this. I don't know how much of this is him trying to stress to his employees how important this is versus maybe what does bankruptcy mean necessarily for a large company when this is when he also has other related endeavors and things like that? Mm-hmm. Because clearly that couldn't be at the start of next year, right? The test mission isn't going to happen until, you know, at some point early next year, but still not January 1st of next year. And so to ramp up to a flight every two weeks, if they could do that at any point, frankly, next year, I would feel like that'd be a, a miracle. But I would hope they could get some star, uh, some Starship launches and operational ones that are taking Starlinks up there next year. I, actually, I wouldn't hope that they could do that because I don't like Starlinks going on orbit. But as far as respecting them yeah. as a company, I I, I I wish them the best, but I don't think they're going to be able to really get this done at least till halfway through the year, if even. And, and even then, that cadence is just too high. These things are just gigantic. And it sounds like if there was any skepticism about them being able to crank out that many Raptor, uh, next generation Raptors in time, they that's what this email is all about. And it sounds like, again, this has been something that had been, it was a problem for, this isn't a new problem. It's only that the full scale was really revealed to Elon. And so there is kind of that joke going around. Have you seen the picture uh, of Elon with his new haircut? Uh, I don't know how new this no. haircut is. But the, the the joke is he's got this haircut that makes him look like uh, Zord from the Fifth Element. It's, it's, it's kind of <laughs> very uh, 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 future punk looking and so the joke that people are you know poking fun is that this is the kind of haircut you get when nobody around you tells you uh, what they really think i I, I only bring that up because somehow this this raptor situation he evidently did not know the full extent of the production crisis until just around thanksgiving and then like you said he was planning to take this nice break the first time in a while and he wound Mm -hmm. up saying he was going to spend all night and all weekend on the production floor and he said 
to the employees too. Return to Hawthorne unless you have critical family matters or you cannot physically do it because you need all hands on deck. What I'm wondering, and maybe it's obvious to other people, maybe not, but why is this a cause for bankruptcy when they have so many other things that they're doing as a company? Mm. Is it just because so much capital has been poured into producing Raptors um, and so much has been put into Starship that now, like, you know, there's no going back? Because, I mean, you know, they could, and I'm not saying that they ever would, but they could just abandon the whole Starlink and Starship and everything, mm. and they could still exist as a company that, you know, flies Falcon 9s. Um, but obviously, they have bigger ambitions than that. Right. So so the, the, the key there is another line from the email, another couple lines where uh, I'll just read Read this out. In addition, we are spooling up terminal production to several million units per year, which will consume massive capital, assuming that satellite version 2 will be on orbit to handle the bandwidth demand. These terminals will be useless otherwise. So they are doing huge capital investments. They're, they're a company that has a lot of money, uh, a lot of valuation, and are able to raise a lot of money. But the company is just investing a lot into things right now, in, into their yeah, production. Yeah, so basically... Yeah. Yeah, so they're kind of like, what's the term? I'm not sure if this is the right term. Are they sort of like over leveraged? Am I using that right? Normally, I feel like I would know exactly what that means. I think that sounds right. I think my, yeah, I think that's, uh, you, you just captured what I was struggling to say. They're, they're, they're seriously leveraged right now. Yeah, so they're putting everything into the terminal production, but they need to recoup that cost and that might be a problem now. So they've kind of like, you know, gone beyond the point of no return. Mm. And so it's like, okay, we've spent all this money. Now we need to make it back. And I guess that's where they stand now. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now one last thing before we leave this, uh, Cy Kyle, uh, as well as Mike in the chat had both brought up what I think, and, and, and I know Ben thinks is a, is a very salient point. Gwen Shotwell is usually much more measured <laughs> in her remarks. Uh, that's, 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 uh, uh, Cy Kyle had uh, written that in our discord. So we're kind of wondering, well, what do you think? What do you think Gwen thinks about exactly? All of this kerfuffle. I mean, this is this is the type of news that makes it to the mainstream top of the hour. My parents have probably heard about this. Yeah. Yeah. So what does Gwen think about all this? That that would be good to know. I haven't heard anything. Have you? No, I haven't either. Yeah. And I feel like we would get a much better, more elucidating response from her because she seems to be much more cool headed and mm -hmm. is just is is just you know a better communicator in general so right. um i would like to know what she thinks cuz i feel like that would give us a better idea of exactly where the company stands mm -hmm. in elon while at least at the time that these were reported when key individuals were asked they did not respond for comment but elon did reply to somebody on twitter essentially saying that they're working on the issue on the the engine presumably he's thinking you know his intervention all hands on deck Let's resolve this crisis. Will be the, will be what's needed to uh, resolve the situation. Yep, they are nothing if not a very agile company. So I think that they'll probably pull it off. Um, I'm not too too worried, hmm. but yeah, it's going to be a hectic time for SpaceX uh, yeah. for the next couple months at least. Yeah, just my own thoughts. When Starship was selected for HLS on its own, the thing that worried me the most is that I don't think Starship is a a done deal. I don't think it's a given that it's going to fly and be a successful rocket that can do all these things that they are talking about. This was not what I was expecting to be the limiting factor, but this is something that will need to be resolved at some point. With that, let's translate on over to a, a much happier topic, and that's Neutron. Uh, that's the good news this week, uh, and this was totally awesome. I would say it verges on mind-blowing for me. Oh, I mean, maybe not mind-blowing, but I was very surprised. I thought we were going to get something much more conservative, uh, mm. but Neutron, a 2050 rocket. Now, 
Uh, sure, I guess that's just, you know, for, I guess, like marketing purposes or whatever. Uh, 2050 rocket, I don't know what the rocket of 2050 would actually look like. But uh, yeah, this is a very innovative design. I mean, I'm just happy. I'm all here for it. I think it's awesome. Oh, yeah. The thing about this rocket that I, I really like, it kind of falls in line with, I guess, my own personal philosophy of how you do reusable rockets. And it's like something that I've kind of like been saying for a long time. I don't know if I've said it a lot on this podcast, but basically, why not design for or put the emphasis on reusability and sacrifice a little bit of payload, you know, because if you look at a company like SpaceX, they want to be reusable, but they also want to lift as much as they possibly can. So they push everything to its absolute limit. But I thought, well, why not just over design for reusability? And that way you'll have a much more reliable launch vehicle. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the philosophy that they've taken with Neutron. I think that Rocket Lab is on a good thing here. I, I think that this is how you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess there's multiple ways to do it. And the, or at least there are multiple ways to get to that point where you have a very reusable, a very reliable vehicle. But they're starting off with reliable. And if you look at SpaceX, they're starting off with being able to like deliver to orbit and then you know they'll bring it back they'll fix up some things they'll get you know a whole five launches out of a stage and then maybe six and maybe seven but why not start out with hey we can do 10 to 20 very easily and then we can go up from there mm. um, and that seems to be how they're doing this and so yeah i think that's cool i i really like that approach i feel like they're yeah even though there's if you include all what 100 plus whatever companies that are uh coming online in the next couple of years nominally launch vehicle companies that there's not the market for all of them but if you're building a rocket in the next couple of years there's enough customers that if you do sacrifice payload mass or payload size but you bring your cost down so much by really really nailing their usability part i feel like that would be something worth pursuing but then again i'm not a business person <laughs> So, yeah. Yeah. So apparently, okay. So this is designed for constellations, uh, geo and a human spaceflight, actually. Apparently, I actually kind of missed that part in interplanetary spaceflight as well, which I guess that kind of goes without saying. Well, I um, should clarify that this is, I wouldn't say that this is so much actually actively designed for human spaceflight, but that is one of the things that when Peter Beck was discussing his approach to designing the rocket, he basically leads with, you don't start with what kind of rocket do you want. You start with what kind of payloads do you want to put into orbit. Mm-hmm. And with that in mind, he considered wanting a rocket that would be capable of delivering these mega constellations, yet still able to take spacecraft to geo, become human rated someday, and his favorite to be able to take spacecraft beyond uh, Earth and cislunar space. So that that's what I mean by that cuz it's as as is right now this is very non-human race. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, for sure cuz there's no spacecraft to put humans into orbit there's just an upper stage. One big feature of this launch vehicle and this was seen as kind of a jab at SpaceX is that this will be made out of carbon composite um and not steel or aluminum which um I guess as we saw from that demonstration is not nearly as strong. Mm. That was almost like a little Elon moment where he tries to you know like or like he breaks something on stage but mm. this time it worked out right and he didn't break a truck window <laughs> right right um, but that's kind of what it reminded me of yeah could, could you describe that in case anybody hasn't 
seen it? Yeah. So he he basically has a big battering ram looking eye beam, mm-hmm. and it's like swung into a sheet of steel first, I think, and right, you right. know it makes a big dent. Then he tries aluminum, and it makes you know an equally large dent. Then he tries carbon composite, and you get nothing. It just kind of like bounces off. Uh, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he kind of thumbs it and you know wipes off some dust, mm-hmm. and he just kind of looks at it like, yeah, this is the stuff that you want to use. And of course, we know that this is a material that SpaceX wanted to use but didn't because it's just too difficult and too expensive to manufacture in large amounts. Mm. But I guess that's where the crucial difference is with Rocket Lab. They know how to do this much faster, much cheaper, apparently. Mm. I don't have any details on that, but uh, this is a process that I guess they've mastered, perhaps, and also maybe also just that um, they're not looking for the kind of launch cadence that SpaceX is with Starship Plus. Um, they're not, probably not going to be launching as many of them, maybe, although I think that they are planned to be used quite a bit, or they're going for a high launch cadence, but I don't know if they're going to be building, I don't know what Elon, I can't remember what he said, like, you know, thousands of Starships or something, I don't remember. But, right, right. Um, you know, like if you're making a smaller vehicle and you're not making quite as many of them, then maybe it's a little bit more feasible. Yeah, I've never heard Peter Beck use analogies of commercial airlines and how they operate. Where you just have your your rocket is just that reusable, which of course has been the dream for half a century now, at least. Whereas SpaceX is very much trying to go down that road. And as for what the engines are experiencing, he has a great line in the video where he refers to not wanting the engines to be busting their bolts every time because you want that reusability you want them to have a nice long lifetime and so don't push them to the limit so what will be returning to the launch site is the first stage so this isn't fully reusable but it's out of the first stage upper stage and fairing it's two-thirds two to the three components at least are reusable the first stage this is not what neutrons early renders look like where it had a typical constant diameter section for most of the rocket particular for the entirety of the first stage. This one starts off a little chonkier at the base and then tapers to a narrower diameter uh, when you get higher up. And that's specifically, uh, I'm sure you're going to take a aerodynamic hit on ascent. But again, this isn't about pushing the rocket to the limit, I think. So that seems to vibe with that uh, approach. But it helps with the thermal management on reentry. As they're already talking about with their making their electron rockets reusable, it's all about that reentry profile to try to shave off as much delta V as possible. But uh, the difference, though, is that this one will, in fact, use propulsive landing. Uh, it'll fire its uh, some subset of its uh, engines, which are new and revealed, and uh, you might have caught them uh, breaking. Uh, the name of them was broken on the show uh, last week. <laughs> uh, they are the Arch- yeah. They're the Archimedes engines. And so uh, there'll be seven on the first stage, uh, one meganewton of thrust each, greater than 320 seconds of specific impulse. And there'll be methylox, which it seems everyone is making their new engines yep. methylox now, <laughs> and a simpler gas generator cycle. Uh, again, with that idea of wanting to not make it uh, bust in its bolts or adding unneeded complexity uh, necessarily. And one thing I left out, sorry, is that the the landing legs are non-deployable. They are these four fixed legs that are sitting there uh, around that wider base at the bottom of the rocket. They kind of kill two birds with one stone in that the tapered size helps with uh, the thermal management, but it it also means that they don't have to deploy legs. They can just land on a much Mm. wider base. So that just adds more simplicity Mm -hmm. uh, to this whole thing. So that's pretty cool. 
Another feature, I guess, is that this will always return to the launch site, um, although it does have an expendable mode, but they're not going to be you know, doing any kind of a barge landing. And I don't know exactly why that would be apart from the fact that they just don't want to bother with that. The whole idea is to make it much simpler. And if you have to land out in the middle of the, of the ocean, then you have to tow it back and do all that kind of stuff. Well, mm-hmm. you know, that's just, you know, more complexity. So why not just say we won't launch like any more than this amount of payload, or you can pay for the fully expendable version, but we're not doing the whole barge thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, that's how they're doing it. So, so my take on this, <laughs> You already explained how awesome this announcement was. I think mm-hmm. this announcement had two things that are standout, wild enough features that on their own would have made this an awesome announcement. And the fact that two of these features were talked about, I think, really takes things to the next level. And one of them involves the upper stage. I don't know, you feel the same way about how that upper stage is integrated into the rocket? Yeah, that's so innovative. Mm. Well, the whole way that the upper stage um, is integrated and, of course, how the payload fairing works as well. Like, this is all right. part of a... That's the other one. <laughs> yeah, big system here that, that it's just, again, you have to... I don't want to say two birds with one stone necessarily, but if you think of it in this holistic way, you know, you change one thing, which means that you have to change another, which means that you have to change another. And if you do it the right way, you have a whole system here that works in a very novel and, you know, very efficient way. I don't know how else to express that, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, so they have a light upper stage and it's uh, the lightest ever. And that's because it's not really, it is an upper stage in that they have a second engine, but that's about it. Um, this is not something that sits on top of the first stage. It sits inside the first stage. Suspended as well. Yeah, and it's suspended. Yeah. So that's such a cool idea. Because if you think again, okay, so yeah, um, so let's just move on very quickly just to the second point, which is how uh, the fairing works. So basically you have a payload fairing that opens up kind of like a... This Rocket Lab itself is referring to it as a hungry hippo fairing. The, or hungry hippo or something else. There was another... Actually, I think oh, there it was, was a, Oh, yeah, yeah. One of the James Bonds involved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's a spacecraft in the James Bond movie, and I haven't really ever watched James Bond movies, um, even though we were just talking about how much we love film. I've never actually watched any. Yeah. Maybe one day I'll get around to watching all of them. I don't know. But uh, yeah, so the... Fairing opens up in a kind of James Bond supervillain kind of way. Well, just just for context, in case other people aren't familiar with the movie, uh, mm-hmm. one of them, one of the early Bonds, so this is a Sean Connery one, involved uh, the bad guys having a uh, spacecraft that would come up to a satellite. I think they were abducting a satellite or a laser weapon or something on orbit, and it would open up these four pedals and then engulf and gobble up the target satellite or whatever it was. And so that's that's yeah, okay. that's what we mean by that. And that's what that that style is what Rocket Lab is calling the Hungry Hippo fairing. It reminds you of the game Hungry Hungry Hippos. Although technically they didn't quite open the same way, but yeah. <laughs> no, they did not. I mean, I had that game as a kid and it's just a, you know, it's just like the upper part of a the hippo just comes yeah. down on the marbles. <laughs> they kind of just overbite <laughs> the marbles, yeah. What's cool about this is that the fairing is attached to the first stage, obviously, because um, there is no second stage. And so, like, when you think of SpaceX, how they're trying to recover the fairing, they have to recover it in a very difficult way because it's attached to the upper stage, which, you know, detaches from the reusable first stage. So what if you just put the fairing on the first stage and then you release the second stage from that? Mm-hmm. That, to me, is a very cool idea. Yeah, um, I mean, I... Don't know if I've ever thought of a rocket working in quite that way. I do kind of, you know, like daydream about these things. And mm-hmm. I don't know if I've ever had quite that idea. I might have, and I just, you know, forgot. But that's a 
neat idea right there. Um, I don't, I can't think of any other rocket that works quite like that. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember hearing anybody spitballing that idea or reading about that idea. Because even in the history of spaceflight, where we really did consider a lot of wild things, I still had not heard about uh, having your. Yeah, if you reuse the first stage, why not have the fairing attached to it so you can just bring it back down? Mm -hmm. And so the, 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 the pedals open up. The second stage, which again is suspended uh, from the fair fairing, uh, gets released with the payload, and then the second, and then the fairing pedals close back down again, and it prepares for its reentry. That's gonna look like something because it's 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 so cool. I mean, the I don't know. Do, do you have uh, what 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 do you think's cooler, the the hungry hippo reusable fairing, or the suspended upper stage? It's hard to say because it's like they're kind of like part of the same system you know what i mean like mm. like you couldn't have like you couldn't have a suspended upper stage unless you had that fairing type i mean i suppose you could make the fairings you know detach but the overall design of the vehicle would have to be the same because you can't suspend the second stage unless it's happening inside the first stage because it has to be suspended from something okay. i guess the fairings look cooler um and i think that's pretty neat and i think that that probably there are some interesting things that that does for the vehicle um having that fairing there because when it comes back as you were saying uh it helps with like the aerodynamics and it gives it a uh, lower ballistic coefficient right which we've talked about before how the larger and more hollow a thing is the more gradually it can re-enter um, and so it's not like you know mm -hmm. slamming back into the atmosphere because it's not heavy and thin but it's kind of like light and fluffy mm -hmm. and so that's got to help there are no control surfaces on the fairings themselves but they do have some pretty far up along the rocket body and I'm sure that having that uh, those fairings there I'm sure that they help uh, mm -hmm. they might even generate a little bit of lift i'm not sure it just seems like a much more aerodynamic design <laughs> um, and it looks cool yeah it looks very james bond yeah I, I i i believe you on that i think the reusable fairing might be the bigger game changer of the two yeah i guess we should talk about some stats here right so yeah you have these down here we didn't mention this um so this vehicle uh is 40 meters tall seven meters in diameter at the base and then it tapers if you look at this compared to the electron rocket it is substantially larger which is the first thing i wanted to say there because i i, I mean we knew that this was going to be a larger rocket but how much larger like it's actually quite a bit um i saw a side-by-side -side comparison and it just dwarfs the electron mm. um it's basically like a falcon 9 except that you have to change the dimensions obviously because it's shorter and fatter at the bottom but overall it's kind of you know in that same class there so it's it's large um in fact it's too large to transport by road so there was a lot of talk about why make it seven meters you can't really move that around mm -hmm. if it's seven meters so it's going to have to be constructed right there on site but that's what you know a lot of manufacturers seem to be doing these days you just put your factory right there next to the launch pad and you don't have to worry about transporting it by road the other stat here uh is eight thousand kilograms to leo and that's with the first stage returning or fifteen thousand kilograms if uh, you don't want to bring it back and it is four hundred and eighty thousand kilograms at liftoff so again much larger than an electron um, i don't have the numbers on that on hand but yeah it's uh it looks it looks about i don't know 10 times the mass and 10 times the size the archimedes engine we can talk about that too we mentioned it briefly that it is a much simpler gas generator cycle which uh, reduces complexity 
again, it's all about, you know, making them fast and simple. And um, Andy Z, who is always sending us emails and always sending us some very informative little things that we would never find otherwise, uh, yeah. said that uh, he likes the Archimedes engine because it's basically a beefed up Merlin 1D. It's a simple cycle. It gives up some performance, but it uh, gains reliability. Yeah. Um, and that you want to build a four 300 straight six of rocket engines, not the BRM V16. All right. So that's some car talk but I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure i do know what a straight six is uh, i don't know exactly what a four 300 straight six is and i don't know at all what a brm v16 is other than it's a v16 i was going to say at that last bit no idea yeah and, and one last uh uh bit from andy uh like we said at the beginning of this segment that uh peter beck did mention having this neutron be a 2050 rocket and that that might include something like inter uh human spaceflight at some point. But there's a little bit of skepticism about what needs to change for that to happen. And in particular, if we're going to be requiring a launch escape system, uh, I just want to point out Andy uh, identifying uh, that a, quote, human rating isn't going to happen with this design. It's tough to do launch escape systems from inside the shell of a rocket. There's no way out short of rigging the detonation cord on the thing and blowing the structure around you, then escape. Uh, and another interesting point that Andy points out is that uh, ingress would be a pain for the same reason. Unless you load the crew into the command module, then load the command and service modules inside Neutron mm -hmm. and launch in short order. Uh, fueling and going is one thing, but mounting the spacecraft and going hasn't really been done yet. And so I don't know if there's going to be a different... Uh, yeah, exactly. So a uh, note in the chat is actually, you know, they're suggesting they might make a crew version without the fairing. And yeah, I think... I don't see why not uh, in the future. If this if this is a if this is a rocket that Rocket Lab would like to keep around for a while, then you could imagine right, uh, kind of iterating on it and making a your first stage. I don't know how the first stage not looking not including the the hungry hippo fairing uh, if that changes anything about the reusability of the first stage. But I mean, it must. One last thing also to mention about the fairing. So we all remember the video that Rocket Lab did some, I don't remember how many months ago, but you saw Peter Beck standing inside of a payload fairing. Well, yeah. that's clearly not the kind that they have now. So what that tells us, obviously, is it, it looks like they've been doing, you know, a lot of redesigning and making a lot, you know, a whole lot of changes, which I think is cool. Um, it's a very SpaceX way to do things. Mm. Or it seems like they had one idea in mind as to what Neutron was going to be. And now it's something quite different. Uh, so maybe they had a, you know, they were just going for a larger launch vehicle with some amount of reusability. But now it, it looks like they've made some pretty big changes and now it seems like this new design is really uh, geared towards making it highly reusable as opposed to maybe just like moderately reusable right yeah it, it sounds it seems to me like they through the design process of this that was okay this is the roughly the size we want this to be this is the kind of payload capacity we want and we want it to be reusable so what is that going to look like well it would be vaguely something like this but upon further mm -hmm. development when they came up with these neat ideas with the fairing and the upper stage and changing the shape of the first stage. I mean, they, they, they kind of changed every part of that. And so the, the placeholder older neutron, uh, I think was, was really just that it was, it was using the initial ideas, uh, once they said that they were going to make this, you know, reusable rocket. Uh, but now, now they really have it kind of figured out. And so finally, before we go, just, uh, uh, ben would like us to squeeze in a little bit of uh, Electron news. And uh, another shout out to Andy Z uh, for bringing a tweet from Peter Beck to our 
attention and the electrons, right? These wonderful black rockets are not going to be so black anymore because there is a, a new TPS that uh, is going to be applied to them. That is an aerogel graphite composite. And there was a little bit of it that you could see uh, on the most recent electron launch, but now moving forward, the rocket is not going to be uh, it's going to be looking uh, silvery with a new TPS system. They love their graphite and composites, and they don't shy away from that. <laughs> so let's move on to short and sweets. And Dennis, what is the first one? First up, ESA tests tanks for its reusable launch vehicle. ESA recently passed an important milestone during development of their reusable first stage vehicle, Themis. Two test tanks were filled, then drained, of cryogenic propellant by prime contractor Ariane Group as part of a series of six tests. To accelerate development, preparation of the launch vehicle is taking place alongside testing of the reusable Methalox Prometheus engine, which through the use of additive layer manufacturing can reduce production costs by a factor of 10 compared to the Ariane 5's core stage Vulcane engine. Next steps will involve combining the Themis first stage vehicle with the Prometheus engine, with the agency planning to begin hop tests in 2022. And then next up, Northrop Grumman wins SLS booster contract. NASA's booster production in operations contract, or BPOC perhaps, that's how it's pronounced, was won by Northrop Grumman earlier this week. The $3.19 billion award was given for the production of the SLS solid rocket booster for Artemis missions 4 through 8, as well as the development of a new version called Booster Obsolescence and Life extension or bowl perhaps that's how that one's pronounced which will be used on later missions the earlier boosters will carry the company through the expenditure of heritage shuttle hardware in particular the steel cases that house the booster segments while the new bolt boosters will use stronger but lighter composite cases electronic tvc instead of hydrazine based tvc and a common propellant formulation all of which should improve performance and safety while reducing cost and complexity and finally fatigue debris and rumors of debris thanks ben for the short and sweet an S-band antenna replacement EVA was postponed Tuesday the 30th due to an unexpected debris notification. The debris source was not identified. We might jump to conclude that Russia's ASAT test on the 15th was to blame, but NASA had already indicated that, quote, elevated concern, end quote, only lasted 24 hours. And non-critical suit risk was increased only 7% over the baseline risk of 1 to 2700 over a 6.5-hour EVA. EVA began two hours late, either to allow the debris to pass or for additional risk assessment to be performed. As a result, deadhead tasks were cut short to assure a six-hour, 32-minute EVA duration. Back inside the ISS, some of the recent air leaks have been traced to the transfer chamber leading to Zarya's aft docking port. Debris strikes have been ruled out as the cause, likely because the transfer chamber is surrounded by an unpressurized compartment which would act as a shield or telltale. That fact doesn't make things better, though, as this tunnel is a low-stress part of Zarya and should not fatigue particularly quickly. Additional leaks still exist, air loss is double the acceptable baseline, and those leaks are expected to also be located in the tunnel. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and corrections, and uh, interesting uh, little YouTube videos sent by Andy. Um, Andrew Z. So, um, Pangea, he just wanted to mention this really quickly, and I guess we should too. Yeah, so this is the new Aerospike engine that is being developed by ESA, I think, right? Yeah, it's it's a European startup, so it's not so much ESA themselves. It's okay, a small okay. launch vehicle company, Pangea Aerospace. And they're doing something that is 
uh, pretty spectacular. They're trying to develop an aerospike engine, which seems next to impossible. But they've said, I think, um, I read a little bit about this last week, that they're using 3D printing and they've kind of managed to address the problem with uh, the heating of the aerospike by printing these very fine channels within the spike. Mm. It kind of all comes down to 3D printing, essentially, that like you couldn't develop this without it um, because that's always been the problem that has plagued aerospikes traditionally is that you have these very, you know, is that you have this truncated spike or this, you know, spike that sits in the middle of uh, the nozzle and it's being heated, obviously, as the exhaust leaves the engine. And so how do you cool it? Um, <laughs> it that's kind of a hard thing to do do from what i've read they've they think that they've cracked that so um you know you might have a feasible aerospike engine that you could fly one day and uh that'd be pretty amazing yeah so thank you andy for the video (laughs) it goes very well with the short and sweet we had two episodes ago on this yep and maybe one day we'll see aerospike engines on something that looks like a rocket lab neutron and i don't know Mm. all future rocket tech here (laughs) so moving on to this week in space by history now uh, we got a bunch of winners. We got Ben Hallert, Kyle Foster, Peter McMalley, Desky Miller, Jack Fisher, and The Greek. And I'm just going to give everyone bonus points since my clue was kind of odd. And some people did guess very specifically. I think uh, it was Kyle Foster guessed what the clue was in reference to or at least linked the clue, which was just a couple of words in German. So, mm. you know, if you break out your dictionary, then it's pretty obvious. Um, so the clue was Hitze und Geschwindigkeit, which just means heat and speed. It has to do with something that happened in December of 1974, and uh, with that, you can probably guess it was the launch of Helios A, and that is indeed what the event was. Now, really, as far as information on this particular mission, it's two spacecraft. It's Helios A and B, and B was launched 13 months later, but nonetheless, I'm going to kind of talk about both of them, especially since Helios B gets more credit than Helios A, since it kind of broke more records and you know perhaps did more just it, it just was a slightly more successful mission mm. so it kind of steals the thunder from helios a mm. and sometimes it's hard to find some specific data on helios a where you can find it with b so uh this was a joint west german slash nasa mission um it was launched on december 10th 1974 um it was a 70 30 share and i assume that means more like cost. So uh, the German Space Agency, uh, or DLR, they covered 70% of that, while NASA covered the other 30. Maybe there was other things, but um, I couldn't find exactly what, you know, what was meant by share. Hmm. Maybe it also had to do with um, who, you know, perhaps, you know, ran these missions during their operation, mm-hmm. um, who took what percentage of the workload. Right, right. So this was launched on a Titan 3E which is a cool launch vehicle. The Hammerhead, apparently, is what it's called. Because <laughs> it has a large payload fairing and a smaller diameter first stage. And it has um, two other boosters. I think actually some solids that were uh, strapped on there too, maybe. Um, but two side boosters. Um, so this is a you know a heavy lift vehicle because we're going all the way to the sun. This was the first non-US slash Soviet built space probe that left Earth orbit, which is kind of a neat little fact. So that's a cool precedent there. Before that, uh, no other nation had ever launched anything beyond Earth yeah. or beyond Earth orbit. I wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> but so the launch on the Titan 3E, a little bit uh, scary, I suppose, because this was the first operational launch. The previous launch, which was a test that had failed due to a LOX turbo pump problem, which um, I read up on that briefly, it had to do with a bolt that basically came loose and worked its way into the turbo pump and obviously messed that up so mm. and and that loose bolt had to do with the fact that somebody didn't have the right size socket wrench so uh, <laughs> right, yeah, I, I guess always use the correct tool <laughs> <laughs> 
So the Helios uh, A and B, or one and two, you can call it either one. It, they kind of go by both. They're very, very, very similar with just some slight differences. So I'm not really going to make the distinction because they're essentially the same vehicle. They are about two by 2.8 meters in size, and um, they have a very interesting shape. So it's a 16-sided spool of thread-like shape, which means that you have kind of like two cones truncated and then facing each other. So if you kind of take the tips of two cones and you push them together, that's kind of what this looks like. And each one of these cones has 16 sides. So 16 little facets there. And the reason for this angle, since uh, the Helios probes are going to the sun, and I guess I didn't explicitly mention that, but yes, this is uh, to take observations around the sun, and they're going to be in a heliocentric orbit. So heat is going to be a problem. The angle allows the sun's light to um, not, or it, it allows them to not absorb as much heat because it's coming in at a slight angle. So there's, you know, sort of like an angle of incidence thing going on there. The central compartment of this thing, which is sort of what sits between the two cone-shaped structures, this has to be maintained between 14 and 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, I apologize, I didn't get the Celsius there, but, you know, somewhere between cold and room temperature. So it was actually insulated with 18 layers of Kapton and Mylar, and they were held apart by these little pins. So basically you have these layers that are not touching one another, just so you don't have a thermal bridge, ah. which I thought is a pretty interesting thing to do. But obviously, if you're building a spacecraft that's obviously, you know, that's not that big, really, and you're putting like 18 layers in there, you can see how that would be some pretty exacting work when you're trying to uh, prevent heat loss. So it's kind of like your, kind of like how you like your thermos works. You know, you have like double walled, but in this case, you have 18 walls. I see. I think that's, I think that's a key part of like why JWST's uh, sun shield works the way it does. It's got those different layers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was going to say, and I also remember that's why you want double paned windows because you want that air in between the glass to act as an insulator. Yeah. So uh, not only do you have those layers, but you also have what are called second surface mirrors. And these are made of fused quartz, and they cover about 50% of the probe's surface. So basically, I'm, I'm not sure what fused quartz is. I do know what quartz is. Uh, so yeah. I guess it's quartz that's fused together. But uh, this particular material makes it easier to reflect and reject heat. And that covers the entirety of the central part of the spacecraft in about 50% of the two conical structures, which also have solar panels. I just looked up what fused quartz means, and it just means that it's non-crystalline or amorphous. So it's it's literally like a glass. So when you look at the molecular level, it doesn't have a crystalline arrangement like minerals do. And so it's it's it, that's what that's what a glass is when you have that amorphous type of thing. So like obsidian, right, is like if, if lava melts, but it doesn't get that crystalline structure, that's why it looks all glassy. So this is like a mirror that's made out of a material that can stand the temperature, I guess is kind of how I would see it, because mm. quartz obviously should be able to take those heat loads, mm. but it kind of is more like a glass and uh, or maybe kind of like a mirror, and it helps reject that heat. So that's pretty cool. So this spacecraft has a low, medium, and high-gain antenna, which is the only part of the spacecraft that's actually constantly exposed to the sun. So this kind of sticks out the top of the spacecraft. It had a crude sun sensor as well, um, and this was used to determine the orientation. They did that by using 7.7 kilograms of cold gas nitrogen. So that's all they had on board to actually maintain orientation, huh. um, which doesn't seem like a lot to me. But I guess the spacecraft itself isn't too huge. I mean, it's about it's it stands about as high as a person. Yeah. So getting to the clue, speed and heat. Uh, let's talk about some of the numbers uh, with respect to that because this is kind of where some of the records come into play. So the Helios A. 
perihelion was 0.3 astronomical units and it had a 190-day period. Now, I couldn't get the exact speed for that. Uh, Helios B wins, and so nobody seems to make any reference to how fast uh, the first one got <laughs> because, the, because the second one set the record. So Helios B, it had a closer or a slightly closer perihelion at 0.29. Slightly closer to the sun, it had a 185-day period, uh, max speed of 252,792 kilometers per hour. And that was a record until Parker Solar Probe beat it at 692. So that's a substantially faster spacecraft right there. That's ridiculous. And I know we've talked about many times about how fast Parker Solar Probe (laughs) is. And yeah, that one wins by quite a, by almost, well, more than twice as much. Mm -hmm. So at this distance, or you could say altitude above the sun, it uh, receives 11 solar constants of heat. So one solar constant is about what you would receive per what square meter um, at the distance of Earth. Is that how that particular unit is uh, defined? It's a flux uh, energy per second per area. So that would be for this uh, spacecraft, 22.4 kilowatts per square meter. So that's a lot. Um, And the temperatures on the surface of this thing could reach 300 90 Celsius or 698 Fahrenheit, and you need to be maintaining in the core of the spacecraft something like room temperature, or actually slightly below that. So heat rejection, uh, a big deal. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of amazing to me how well this worked, because I don't think that there was any active thermal control beyond, you know, having these mirrors and you rotate the spacecraft, which it did rotate at 60 RPM. So, you know, you're kind of doing the old old barbecue roll. (laughs) So the experiments on board, there were 10 of them, and they roughly fall into three categories. You had... uh, the particle detection, basically detecting ions, the electrons, and molecules. Then you had uh, the interplanetary magnetic field detection portion of uh, the mission. And then you had the cosmic dust detection, which has to do with zodiacal dust, zodiacal light, which we've talked about before, which is a pretty cool phenomenon that I learned about on the show. I didn't know about zodiacal light, mm-hmm. I guess because I don't really see it from where I live. Um, there's already too yeah. much atmospheric crap in the atmosphere. Yeah, so how that worked, I just kind of wanted to talk about that briefly. It basically had a photometer uh, that was angled at 15, 30, and 90 degrees to the ecliptic. So you can take in the light at three different angles and see what you get back. Um, And uh, there was a previous spacecraft, I'm not sure which one, that basically did the same thing, but there was a little bit of light pollution. So this one, they made sure that they, you know, shaded it properly so that it it was just seeing zodiacal light and uh, there were no other uh, light sources from the sun or anything that was on board the spacecraft. And that's kind of, you know, the first very good detection that we got of exactly uh, what the composition of the dust was that creates zodiacal light. Another interesting experiment was the plasma experiment investigation. So this measured the velocity, the distribution of the solar wind plasma. And of course, there was cosmic radiation investigation. That was another thing. So basically, you're measuring cosmic rays and exactly what the composition of those are. And then there was a micrometeoroid analyzer, and that measured the composition, charge, mass, velocity, direction of those interplanetary dust particles. And so what they found was there is a much larger amount of uh, these dust particles once you get closer to the sun. Um, I guess that's not surprising. I don't know. Um, But you can kind of think of the the solar system as a whole, and there's more mass towards the center, it seems, I guess, or more dust. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, typically, (laughs) like, your, your instinct is right, right? That when stuff forms, there's more mass towards the middle in the disk. But because the disk is gone, I guess just that, you know, whatever remains left over from the formation of the solar system, you know, any of that dust, there would tend to be more of it closer in closer to the sun and then also that uh that that radiation drag uh that the solar that radiation exerts i think would only continue to bring in more from 
outer parts. Yeah, probably. And um, Helios A didn't fail until March of 1986, which is pretty amazing. So it remained in orbit around the sun and it remained operational, like more importantly, because both of these spacecraft are still in orbit around the sun. Mm. But the first one lasted until 1986. The second one, which again launched 13 months later, uh, that didn't make it past 1980. And that was due to a failed radio transceiver. But they both, you know, survived pretty well beyond their 18 month mission duration. So overall, a pretty big success. And they, you know, did a lot of interesting uh, science. And again, the first mission beyond low Earth orbit that was not done by the US or Russia, uh, or I guess the Soviet Union at the time. I think that's a pretty cool accomplishment. So uh, well done, Jordan Space Agency. <laughs> well, awesome. Thank you, David. That is that was a uh, really interesting one and and surprising in a number of different ways. <laughs> the fact that they were the first uh, or the third country to have a probe leave Earthward yeah. was pretty wild and that it was able to passively cool itself to the extent that it could. Now, Ben will be taking care of our next clue. Uh, David, I'll let you uh, speak on Ben's behalf. Uh, so next week okay. is the 14th to the 20th of December. Do you have a clue for us? Uh, yes, I do. Next week's event is in 1976, and your clue is two tickets. I mean, just one ticket to space, please. Well, I don't know what that is in reference to, but if you think you know, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right, so finally, upcoming spaceflight events. We got five events, and uh, Dennis, the first one looks like it's a launch, and then uh, uh, after that, we do have a rendezvous and docking. So our first launch, we got a pretty busy schedule coming up, but uh, on Wednesday, December 8th, uh, we kind of gave a call out to this last week. Um, because it was getting close to when we release things. But just a reminder that Wednesday, December 8th, we have a Soyuz 2.1A, which will be taking uh, MS-20 to the International Space Station. And this is the mission that will have uh, Roscosmos cosmonaut Alexander Mazurkin, as well as uh, the two tourists on board. Uh, following in the footsteps of uh, Akiyama Toyohiro, <laughs> we, will have, we will have Yusaku Maezawa and his assistant Yozo Hirano, where uh, if you recognizes the person, the billionaire who booked out that flight uh, on Starship. And so he will be going to space one yep. way or another before he travels to the moon, evidently, uh, if that happens. And so the launch again is Wednesday, December 8th at 07-3815 UTC, and it'll be launching out of Baikonur at pad 31-6. So after that, then we have the rendezvous and docking of that spacecraft and the hatch opening. And so you can watch that on NASA TV or YouTube, whichever, same, same thing. The coverage of that begins at 2 a.m. on the 8th. Uh, so nice and early. Uh, the rendezvous and docking will happen at 8 o'clock in. These times are all Eastern, which is what we always do for NASA TV. So I guess you'll have to do the conversion there. The hatch opening is uh, in the, well, the hatch opening and welcome ceremony is at 10.15 a.m. So about two hours after the rendezvous and docking, which then comes four hours after the initial launch. So yeah, this is definitely a very quick trip to orbit and then rendezvous and docking, which is always neat to watch. Uh, the Soyuzes do not waste time. Uh, yeah, yeah. You watch it. 2 a.m. and you're on board or at or at least docked by 8 a.m. six hours later. And then after that, this is a very exciting launch, uh, in my opinion. Uh, this is on December 9th, mm -hmm. uh, and it is a Falcon 9 Block 5 that will be taking the, I believe it was long delayed, but the uh, Imaging X-ray Polarimetry Explorer, or IXPE. And so this is an X-ray telescope specifically uh, to measure uh, <laughs> uh, polarimetry, which is uh, basically good think of it as what direction are the uh, is the radio mag electromagnetic radiation wiggling. It's it's being uh, go look up images of it being an X-ray space telescope. It of course is very cool looking. It's got a long boom uh, that extends out and all that jazz. Uh, that that makes the 
the bulk of the spacecraft, I should say. And so it'll be launching again on December 9th, uh, Thursday, uh, with a window from 0600 to 0730 UTC and flying out of Kennedy at Launch Complex 39A. So then after that, on the 9th, the same day, so it might actually be be before it, um, uh, we have a new Shepard launch, and that is launching uh, NS-19. And uh, so this is um, a 6 person crew i think this is a record right this is the most that yeah ever it'll be once. the first time with a full cabin full cabin all civilians all american it looks like here according to the wikipedia page here this uh this launch will have laura shepherd uh whose father is alan shepherd so that's really neat um and it also has a former new york giants defensive end uh michael strahan i don't actually watch much football so i don't know much about that so i he's also somebody who's like He's been a talking head on a lot of different things. Like he's been on, I'm sure he's been on like Dancing with the Stars and popping in, dropping in on the View and those kind of things. Like he's 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 a big personality beyond just uh, uh, since okay. he's retired. But um, you you might recognize him. So that's launching at it looks like 1500 UTC from Corn Ranch Launch Site One at 1500 UTC. So that'll be cool. Uh, check that out. I'm sure there will be a live feed where you can watch. Yeah, and then finally, we have a yet another launch, uh, our last event for the week. And this is going to be on Sunday, December 12th. And this is a Proton M with a Breeze M upper stage. And it'll be taking a pair of Russian domestic communication satellites, uh, Express AMU-3 and Express AMU-7. And so these are going to geostationary and will be located at 96.5 degrees and 145 degrees east, if you like to keep track of that stuff. And uh, again, this is Sunday, December 12th, uh, with an instantaneous launch at 12.09 UTC. And it will be flying out of Baikonur at pad 239. Okay, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And that means it is time to deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Chris, a.k.a. Stye Garfield, Deathkin, Note Boatsma, Mike, Kenton, Fiery Dawn, Chubby, Dave M., Cy Kyle, and Colin for joining us live in today's chat. Wow, what a crew. Thank you. <laughs> and if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.